1: Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest, I guess, that, have a, that has literally, you know, built a company from nothing, you know, to over 700 employees. I think that we're going to be really learning a lot, you know, finding his journey very inspiring. And again, you know, we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear, you know, the turnarounds, the ups, the downs, um, you know, ultimately doing certain Things, you know, like maybe, you know, like got them ahead of their skis, you know, back in 2012 and what they did to be able to to overcome, you know, those uh, those hurdles. And then also, you know, like how they groom and develop, you know, their people, too, which is very interesting. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Bruce Balangia. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Alejandro and all all you folks out there. So originally born and raised in Texas. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up?
0: Well, it was quiet. I mean, I was in uh, South Texas, Corpus Christi, which is not that large a, a city, and very, uh, you know, it was very quiet. It's like three blocks from uh, saltwater, so it was fun. You, uh, you know, throw your fishing gear and nets and stuff in your baskets on your bikes and <laughs> ride, ride your bikes to a place where you could fish, and that was, you know, that was the great escape thing, yeah, for it, for our friends, yeah.
1: So out of all things, you know, I mean, for you, it was it was really straight out of uh, college. You just went at it, you know, at the grad Correct. school. So you didn't even wait. Uh, what really got you into finance and economics and, and also business?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, when I was earlier, yeah, I had planned to go in, in into banking. And that was from getting advice from upper classmen. Because I really didn't know for sure what I wanted to do when I went to college. I didn't know I didn't want to do some things. And when I talked to them, like, oh, you should do economics. You know, that sounds like it really fits you. And there's more money in finance, so do economics and finance. And that led to, you know, that led to, oh, let's do banking, which led to, oh, you got to have an MBA to be a banker. I don't know if you still do. But back then, you had to have an MBA. So, yeah, that that got me all the way to the end of uh, grad school and then it was okay well now you need to find a job and there were, there were any number of banking jobs i interviewed with a lot of banks had a lot of offers and then this one company came along that was into consulting uh, you know now called Accenture. and i was like well this is interesting and i got hooked i mean they convinced me forget about banking come work for us and so that was my first uh, first 10 years
1: uh, i mean and and obviously consulting has been has been your thing no so in this case yeah, a 100%. So so in your case, you know, Accenture, Bushal in Hamilton, uh then you know you did Sprint and going back to Accenture. So what do you think, you know, needed to happen, you know, along those years for you to feel comfortable to start, you know, what will be your first business?
0: Oh, well, that's a great. Yeah, that's a great question. And and so it's interesting. Right? I was going to ultimately I wanted to have my own bank, but when I was in consulting I was like, oh, well, this is kind of different. I didn't really think about that. But when I had gone back, I'd left Sprint and gone back to Accenture and the, the three CIOs I had worked for at Sprint, had all left. They were different telecom companies, different Rbox and long distance companies around the U.S. And they were, you know, they were all each one was trying to recruit me. And I didn't want to do that, but I was willing to consult. And so that's what convinced me was, OK, they, they all have worked for me. right? <laughs> and, and so. There's this concept of being called to start a business, which I think was part of it. I was called to start a business, but this was a little different. Someone was picking up the phone and saying, "I have business that I want you to do <laughs> right so a different kind of being called, so I was called to to do it, and it made it an easy an easy launch right it was It was just easy and in that sense to have your have work lined up you know have a backlog right out of the gate with. Former bosses, you know, it doesn't get much easier than that. (laughs) People, people that you already know how to work with and satisfy.
1: So then, at at what point does the uh, whole idea? Because I mean, you were you were for quite a bit uh, in the corporate, uh, you know, side of things. I mean, you were uh, heading an IT department for Sprint, you know, after Accenture, then going back to Accenture as a CTO there uh, for one of the companies that they have bought. But then eventually, you know, you start taking a look and and you. Go at it. You go at it with ultimately your own business, you know, which that would become Dolphin International. So, how was that first rodeo like?
0: Well, as I said, that long, that start was very easy. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, being on the road five days a week was a grind. Like back back in the Booz Allen and Accenture, you know, Accenture days with a young family, so that was hard. But the family was like, you know. It's good, right? You're making <laughs> you're paying the bills <laughs> and, and a little bit more. So no worries about uh, about that. But it was it was kind of one of those things. that we gonna scale this? Are gonna scale this or do something else? And uh eventually it was, no, I'm not gonna scale this. And so I'm kind of joined uh, Tactica, what's it called Techni- Tactica Technology Group at the time, another small company. But larger, you know, larger than mine. We had tens of employees versus, uh, in effect, a couple at, at Dolphin. So, uh, and the hard part, the hard part was the lack of human interaction and just being, yeah, you know, working with customers, but not having a team, not having much of a team. Yeah, that was to me important. I like, I like having teams.
1: So then tell us about the merger, too, because you did a merger there, you know, that accelerated mm-hmm. things, no, on the growth yep. side, on the revenue side, and and also how yep. that uh, leads to ultimately the acquisition on the sell side. So how did you engineer all of that?
0: It was, uh, I mean, because it was such a small, two small organizations, right? There was a lot of handshaking and very little and very little of that and essentially agreeing on a number of shares, uh, you know. Uh, agreeing on a number of shares and proceeding from there, but it was a great—I mean, it was a great start. I was able to double double our revenue of the new company in the in the very first year. I mean, some of it was revenue coming over, but most of it was opening new opening n- new accounts. Uh, and the t- it, the timing was good. It was it was a good time in uh, the IT space. It was a good time, particularly in Texas and in Texas's. Was doing a lot of expanding and spending a lot of money on IT in the large companies, and so it was just a great time to 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 do that. And because we were able to accelerate our growth and massively increase our revenue, we were able to basically start to position for you know an exit uh, of that of that company.
1: So how was how was it like to see the uh, full cycle? You know, at that point when the company ends up getting acquired by Hitachi and. And then you're looking back and, you know, and and having that, getting that transaction done. I mean, what, what did that, what did, what visibility did you get from, you know, the full cycle of buildings, you know, scaling and exiting a business?
0: Well, I think the key takeaway for me, for me was, and I was resistant to, to selling to Hitachi. I mean, we did and all that. I wouldn't, I wasn't a fan of that. I think I was validated by, you know what happened in the market and all that sort of stuff um it's just a very it's the beginning of a very tough time the tech wreck had already started and so uh yeah to me a lot of it was okay the things people promise and what's written down on contract on contractual paper and legal paper doesn't necessarily mean much (laughs) that was the key that was the key lesson out of that deal uh you know for uh for me and i think for most of the other shareholders of uh you know of of tactica i think we had probably a similar experience and it wasn't it wasn't hitachi's fault it, it was the it was the tech rack it was just a very yeah you know, you're selling at a peak you're you're selling at the uh, you know after the peak Hitachi needed our revenue to meet their revenue target from Tokyo, right? They had to do acquisitions and they were given money to acquire. But there you know things were contracting and so we were kind of walking right into that. We were very stable, we were actually growing a little a little bit even in that market uh, ourselves, but we were much smaller, yeah. So it's so- just, stuff happens.
1: So, obviously, stuff happened, but the transaction, you know, did happen, uh, and uh, then you end up becoming the CFO there, you know, doing some uh, cleaning, uh, that uh, some house, house house cleaning that you needed to do during the time there, and at this point is when you start thinking about doing a PhD of your own, you know, shifting directions, and all of a sudden, that's when the uh, company, you know, Paribida, you know, comes, uh, you know, the idea comes knocking, and and why did you feel that the idea was meaningful enough, And and how did you get? You know, going on this,
0: having told people at Hitachi that there was a fairly large group of folks that I was working with—not not more senior people, but you know, junior folks, more junior folks, of course, were other senior management people—that I was, that was my plan. My plan was to this was the spring, and then the fall, I was going to go, you know, go off and get my doctorate. And I wanted them to know they'd have time to plan because I I knew a number of them weren't going to stick around if I wasn't there to kind of you know stop. Stuff from coming down on them, and uh, they were pretty excited about. Well, if you're leaving, we want you to start a company. And we went through a, a variety of discussions. You know, people would fly in from around the country. We'd meet on Hitachi in Hitachi's offices and and talk about it. It was some of the strangest stuff when you think about it. But I imagine it happens a lot, a lot more than people probably think for stuff to happen like that. And we went through a few ideas, and they they really didn't like any of them. And they basically said, Bruce, you don't understand us. We need you to start a consulting company so we can come work with you, which to me was I was being called, you know, it's different, different kind of calling, but actually called to start a company. And I thought about it and, and said, okay, you know, let's, let's do this. We need to do it. They need to do it. And. Even even if it's a consulting company, which I was kind of tired of doing consulting after you know a couple of decades of it, it was like uh, we can be different, and so and and the, so that was the gestation of that. We we were a different, and we are a different kind of consulting company than kind of your your uh, typical your typical ones or the ones that we had grown up with. So that was you know that was basically the the gist of that.
1: So then, how do you start developing the company? I mean, what, what, what were the early days like? Because I mean, it was just the two of you at the beginning, and and what was that journey like? You know, the early days.
0: Yeah. So I mean, it was interesting that uh, the other person that started had been had been fired, and uh, I had, and their whole thing it was an iffy proposition. You know, should they quit their job and come work at this company? And it was pretty iffy, and I. I told them, I said, "Look, you know, if you get fired, I'll quit, and we'll start a company together." And so, and we had gone through that. They'd been fired, and they were like, "It's chill, you know. We don't, you don't need to quit and start a company. I'm going to go off, and I'm going to do these things. Chill, right? Good, right?" They had their plan. Any anyway, doing a different kind of consulting. But when this happened, it was like they were, you know, we were the first two employees, and so. With the two of us, it was because you know, the other folks were like, "Hey, you need to get some work before we can kind of join you, <laughs> right? We don't, we don't have access to, we don't have the relationships where we can go out and yeah, you know, drive drive business." But the two of us did, and so we had—I I'll, I'll love to say—we had a one-page website with our five core values, which we, you know, we still got the same five core values today. And as I like to describe it, we went out and begged. I mean, we went to. People that we knew who were in positions as buyers, you know, C, almost all C-levels. A few people that weren't C-levels and in various companies. Not any, you know. Well, there's a few Fortune 500 size, but most of them were, you know, a billion to maybe a hundred billion or so in revenue and we just talked to everybody that we knew and we told them look you know us before you know we've done great work for you in our other capacities as employees of other companies now we've got our own company and you know you know we can do good work and of course it wasn't a great time this was 2003 the the bottom of you know the bottom of the tech wreck, so to speak uh the lowest employment level of it uh people you know, on a percentage basis, probably in the history of the industry. And, and so many times they were like, well, we'll love to, but I don't, you know, there's just nothing. But eventually that we, we had some people who said, I've got, I remember the very first one, I've got a $20,000 project you can do. Can't promise you anything else. Right. That's it. That's it. I've got this one software selection. I got 20 K budget for it. I can give it to you. And we were just like, oh, thank you. <laughs> right? yeah thank you and that was you know that was in month three and we were off you know off to the races by the end of the first year first 12 months we were done a million dollars in revenue but it was you know because things started to pay off right meetings that had before been i don't have anything for you people were calling back and saying now you know now now i've got a project right and i really want you to do this and so it it is just a very good It's a real real good story. It's a real testament to having strong, trusted relationships
1: with customers. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid-cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then for the people that are listening to Get It, you know, what ended up being the business model of Paribida. How are you guys making money?
0: Well, I would say, you know, in a very traditional sense, right, we supply people to do project work, mostly building custom software, but a whole variety of of, of things. But mostly, you know, mostly that, probably 80%. In that sense, I would say where we're diff- different is we think in terms of the long game. So. Which has to do, and this may be a bit of a segue, but it's really important. I mean, what's different about Pariveta is part of our whole focus is on developing people to their highest potential, which is clearly employees, but also clients. And beyond that, you know, Pariveta as an entity, our clients, companies as, as entities, but it's primarily the, you know, the individual. And so there's a whole concept of lifetime relationships, which I was kind of alluding to earlier. The idea of a lifetime relationship, but not thinking about things transactionally, but doing things in terms of what is in the best long term interests of us, you know, and that person and then our company and and their company. And it's uh, it's a whole different way of thinking about things. And it, and it's if you wind up turning down some work. I mean, there are stories of turning uh, where, you know, where, People would say, I really want you to do this project. You know, whatever, I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars set aside for this project. And I'd be in there and I'd say, Well, you know, if you insist, we could do that. But have you thought about, have you thought about this? Like, basically, I'd be making the case think about reframing this, what you think is the problem, reframing it. And it may be that it's this other thing that, you know, we could fix for, $50,000. Fifty thousand dollars, and several times you know that would happen. Well, that builds incredible reputation and trust. Actually, so you say, okay, well, so we're yeah we we weren't being very traditional and thinking about it conventionally as a as a transaction. And you know, hey, they would love for us to do that project at that level of scale, and we could do it really well. It's like, but but what you really need is this. So let's do that. And what the result is. <laughs> In my experience, the result is you wind up getting an abundance of work from that, both from that that organization, because they're like, these are people that we can trust. Yeah, because they're thinking about us first before they're just thinking about the deal. And then, of course, reputationally, as that word gets around. And so you've got people calling that say, I need you. right? You know, you don't know me. Uh, you know, but I'm so and so. I'm a CFO of such such insurance company, and I've heard about you, and I need you to bid on this project. Or one of the most fascinating ones over the <laughs> over the years was we'd started a little bit of work with a very large, you know, very large publicly traded company in one department, and uh, the procurement people for IT found out about us, and they were having an issue with their buyer. You know. Their buyer, not their vendor, not the vendors, but they had an RFP and the buyer, the person with the money, they were having great difficulty with them. So this isn't right. And the procurement was saying, man, this isn't right. There's something wrong. There's something wrong here. Let's get the pariveda Veda folks to bid on it. And so they're calling us right before the finals. Yeah. And saying, will you, this procurement, will you propose? <laughs> you know, and it, From uh, other people in the company, we've we we heard the story, right? Like, you know, why this is weird? You know, it's procurement and it's at the end, and why is this happening? And so we said, okay, we'll do it right, if only because we need to honor our relationship with this company. And so we did it. We got huge thank yous from procurement. Of course, the people were (laughs) like, because we showed a whole different way of doing it, and and challenged you know, waste a lot of challenge about why the way that, that they wanted to do it wasn't going to work, which procurement was like, thank you. We can do something off here and you just explained it to us. But of course we lost, right? Because the buyer was the one that got to decide. But I'll just tell you that over the, over the next three or four years, we had millions and millions of dollars of business with the backing of procurement because we had done that.
1: That's amazing. Now, one thing that uh, obviously you guys uh, started scaling this thing nicely, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you grew this all the way to 700 employees today. I mean, what do you think is the uh, ultimately the, the recipe or the ingredients that needed to be in place for you guys to, to grow the organization the way that you did?
0: Yeah. Well, there's probably a... I mean, there's any number of components like uh, any other company. Uh, I do think our our secret sauce is thinking about things a little differently. So most thinking in the business world is based on the concept of scarcity. You want to have a scarce thing, that's a scarce thing is a valuable thing. It's just true. There's no no denying it. And in professional services, the general thinking is work is scarce. There are only so many, there's only so much work out there that's gonna to go to bid or that would be offered. To uh, you know, a third, a third party, somebody outside the company. Right? Are they going to fund the project or not? Yes or no. If yes, then they may do it internally. If uh, if no, if not internally, then they're going to go outside. And there's you know, all that sort of stuff. And so work is scarce. So the way uh, we think about it is, no, there's actually an infinite amount of work out there. There's there's only so much money at any given time. But there's an infinite amount of work because we o- the world will always have problems. I mean, I mean we, the world always needs solutions. The challenge is when things are good and versus things are bad, it's like when things in our industry, professional services means people had a lot of ideas about solutions they wanted or problems they had, and the world changed. The economy goes down. The industry's in trouble. Something happens at that company, and they say, whoa, we have to reprioritize. And they go look at their list of problems that they were going to go solve. They say, well, you know, we can't justify funding any of this because they have the wrong problems. It's not like there aren't problems. They have the wrong problems. They don't have stuff to do. So what's scarce are people who can correctly identify the problem by reframing you know, the, the context and determine what the, the actual problem is and then coming up with a practical solution to solve it. So our whole reason to Etra is we want we are that problem solver. So we're that one that figures figures that out, you know. And if you need a a fifty thousand dollar solution instead of a half million dollar one, that's what we're gonna propose. And similarly, it could be the other way, right? which people don't want to. I mean, customers don't want to hear that. But we're gonna give you the straight poop, you know, as we as we see it. And, and that's scarce. So if, if you think about all the effort that has to be to develop someone from early in their career, usually right out of school, if you think someone, you may not hire them there, but that's where they started. Someone hired them and developing them quickly into this ninja problem solver. yeah. You, know, you know, this architect advisor uh, persona, that's tough and no one's really cracked, you know, no one's really figured that out entirely i think we figured out a lot and that's our and so that's our thing and one of the th- one of the things that uh, you know we're particularly proud about is we we when we started the company we knew we wanted to go to college campuses and hire young people for the first job that's part of why we were doing software development because you can convince clients that it's okay to have a new college hire programming something right and then you gotta develop them into this architect advisor that can walk into a boardroom and yeah, do their magic. And that takes that takes time and that. So we started, we started a company in late 03 and 06. We were on campus, 07, they you know they were showing up. And uh 1920-ish, we started having our first college hires become vice presidents. So that's a huge thing. And there, I mean, there's so many companies that never even if they hire college hires that none of them ever become a vice president or a partner in their firm. And it's, and then you just think about the percentages, the, like, a, at a big firm, like the one I used to be at in other large firms, there's, there's kind of these, the, I would call them kind of jokes or dry humor where you're in the, you know, in the introductory, and you're there are all these people in the room and you're all being onboarded. And someone might say something like, look to your right. Look to your left, and you know, fifty people that way, fifty people that way, and said, one of you will become a vice president or one of you will become a partner. <laughs> right? It's just the systems aren't geared to deal with that shortage, right? Of the problem solver. The problem solver is the shortage, not the problems, right? So anyway.
1: Yeah, no, no, I get it. And yeah. and now in terms of the structure of the company, you know, it's quite a unique structure, you know, via ESOP, you know, where the employees have the ownership. So, so tell us about this.
0: Yeah, that was. It goes back to the beginning of of, of Beta. and the probably scarred by the experience of going through very, you know, being acquired and you know all that sort of stuff. And I came to. I know this is the horrible sacrilegious thing to say, but that, to me selling selling your company is a bit like kill, killing it you know because it's in professional services it's not going to exist anymore The culture it, i mean there's rare cases where you're being acquired by a tiny company and you're the, the larger one and your culture survives that's that happens but typically your culture might make an impact but it often doesn't um in that process, and so your company really is going away. It's great to celebrate right? You get to go everywhere and talk to everybody. Everyone, you know, everyone wants to hear about how you sold your company. It's great success, but it's kind of sad. And and if you're trying to develop people to their greatest potential, you can't do that in 10 years or 15 years. It's a whole career thing, and so you need to be thinking about being around for a long time. And so, to me, that was one of the conditions that I set when back when it was, hey, we want you to start a company that rest of supposed to work for. That was one of my two primary conditions was we must be an ESOP. And of course, it was, well, what's an ESOP? So they never, <laughs> never heard of it. And I told them and they were like, okay, that's okay, right? Uh, and so we became, we started in 03, but it's kind of like, well, are we going to make it or not? We don't know. And it costs money to be an ESOP. So in 06, we said, we're making it, right? We're going to campuses, we're making it. And so uh, January 'o seven. We became we became an Aesop. And so and so there's this idea about to me, so again, people will say, oh, this is a terrible thing to say, but think about, you know, an Aesop doesn't get tired. An Aesop doesn't say, I want my money because I'm gonna go sail on a yacht. Uh, I want to golf all day or whatever, pick your pick your, you know, hobby, <laughs> right? That they're just tired of an Aesop. That, you know, they're an, an animate object. They can just go on and on forever. And so that has that aspect of longevity. And of course, there's this other thing about then everybody in the company winds up with with ownership. I mean, you have to do a thousand hours of work. I mean, there's some various ERISA requirements, right? But pretty much, you don't have to be long very around very long in a company that's an ESOP company to start becoming an, uh having shares. They're held in trust. Yeah for you. And so that's a, you know, it's a very powerful, you know, it's a very powerful concept and it fits again with this developing people to their highest potential, the owner and the owner mentality. Right. So that was
1: back in 2023 in April, you know, you were grooming, you know, people to, to really make it to, to leadership, you know, part of that, sense of ownership and and groom them all the way from college to to senior uh, roles. But in April, you decide that it's time to step down uh, or step up, and then you became you know, a director in the company. So what a wild uh, and incredible journey that you've had, Bruce, now over the course of 19 years, you know, really at the reins of the company that you built it from nothing. No? I guess say, now if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time you know, to that moment back in 2003 where, where you were thinking about you know, starting this business, if I give you the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self, what would that tell? What would you tell that younger self before launching the business and why?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd say some of the things were things I kind of knew, but would not want to admit to, like, you know, it's not going to come, it's not going to play out the way that you think it is. I still learn that lesson regularly in many ways all the time, right? But uh, that was a big one. I'll... Uh, I mean, I'll, I can share, I mean, like we're about 150 million in revenue ish, you know, when we started the company with a slightly different idea of the model of where we'd wind up, my envisioning was in 20 years, we could be at half a billion. Well, we're not close. I mean, in some ways we're close. I mean, there's not a huge difference in scale there, but if you say, oh, that's three times, it's like, yeah, we are a third. That's a big difference. And there's a lot of things that go into that. But I remember that was one of my, that was one of my things because I was like, uh, you know, to as part of the longevity and part of the sustainability of it, you kind of, in professional services, 150 is pretty good, but really the sweet spot in terms of sustainability is probably around half a billion to a billion, which means you're going to be a global, you know, global, and all that sort of stuff. So that was part of it. And we're not, you know, we're not, we're not close. We're clearly on the way, <laughs> but we're not close to that. I uh, obviously, you. we could get some outside money and we could go on an acquisition. You know, we could get some outside money. We could go acquire people. That's normally the way it's done.
1: Uh, yeah. But I mean, remarkable the fact that you guys were able to uh, really bring this from nothing, you know, and, and and raising nothing, you know, to 700 employees, 150 million in revenue. Hats off to you, to the team, you know, to everyone at Paribeda and the uh, and Bruce, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
0: Well, my uh, work email, Bruce, bruce.balanjee at paribetorsolutions.com is great. Um, if you send me an email, you'll get
1: my, uh, you'll get my cell phone. Well, is... easy enough. Easy enough. Easy enough, You have got to
0: work for the cell phone number.
1: <laughs> <laughs> easy enough. Well, hey, Bruce, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. All right, Alejandro,
0: it was a real pleasure. Thank you for reaching out.